Equity is great. You should always be aiming for high margins. You should never see your equity as cash reserves. The reason is that that's like a secondary. I would actually say cash reserves one, lines of credit two, equity three. But you need, we don't need the second one, although they're nice, but you need cash reserves and equity. Welcome to the Good Stewards Podcast, the only podcast dedicated to seasoned real estate investors who want to maximize the cash flow potential in their business. We are buy and hold investors with a thousand plus properties and markets across the U.S. who bring an insider's view into the nitty gritty details of real estate investing. If you're looking to develop the mindset, teams, and systems that can dramatically build your real estate business and net worth, you're in the right place. Welcome to this episode of the Good Stewards Podcast. I'm Ryan Dossey. I'm Amanda Perkins. I'm Bill Sirius. And I'm Andrew Sirius. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you. We are going through a, the questions that are on the top of people's minds. We've gotten some questions this week, and we wanted to give the best answers that we possibly could. We know there's a lot going on. There's the COVID-19 pandemic. There's the lockdown. There's people yelling at each other. Social media is particularly fire. I've seen a notable uptrend in posts that have all caps. So uh, I know people are a little <laughs> cooped up. And uh, we'll try to get easier real estate answers as best we can here. So we've gotten some questions on Facebook, on our forums, and our articles and whatnot. And so uh, one of the first one we've seen Several we've gotten were about lending requirements. One specifically, I think the lender dropped, uh, they dropped what they were willing to lend 12%, which cost $400,000 on the, the, the loan amount. And I've heard of this throughout here and there and, and whatnot, is uh, people really getting hit hard on uh, lenders basically saying, oh, yeah, we'll do this before COVID and then at, you know, pre COVID, post COVID, yeah, PC and and I guess they're both PC, but whatever. Uh, pre COVID, yeah, after COVID, yeah. Po- I was thinking post COVID, after COVID, during COVID, DC. Uh, is lenders really hitting us? In fact, we got hit on one. We actually had one experience in uh, with our Texas partnership where we had a loan that we had gotten a kind of a pre approval letter or, or at least a term sheet, and then. Once COVID happened, they really they really hammered us. I, I don't know if you remember off the top of your head exactly how much they went up on LT, like went down on the LTV and up on the interest rate. But our our, our strategy was we were uh, kind of excited because this uh, lender offered thirty year amortization, which we were on a twenty year, and we were basically trying to lower our monthly expenditures. This was pre COVID, and they also uh, had about a point interest rate drop from where we were at. So we were in the process of uh, refinancing over 40 properties. Yeah, and, about uh, 46, I think. Yeah, and, and had quite a bit of money out in those ref- in those appraisals. And all of a sudden, the lender said, no, sorry, here's our new term sheet, which was dramatically worse, a higher interest rate and lower LTV. And poof, that was gone. Now, we will go back to them and knock on their door again in a month or two just to see if maybe uh, things are different. This this lender is not tied to a bank. It was a uh, the bank, the funds were coming from uh, other sources like hedge funds and so forth. So uh, the interest rate drop did not help us there when, uh, when their uh, lending requirements stiffened up dramatically. So well, it's happening it a, all over the place. It is a lender that we've 
closed properties with before, but um, it did feel a lot like having the rug pulled out from under you because we had sent in a, a significant chunk of money that we'll hope that we can, we'll hope their terms can get back in line. I just don't know if they'll get back in line and still honor the appraisals we paid for on 46 properties. So the way to approach this issue though, is just to understand that it's going to happen. Now we've had multiple, I've heard multiple, we've had this happen to us once in Texas. We've had, we've heard multiple people getting this, dealing with this issue. What we, there's two things I would note. The first one is we have not had this problem in Kansas city, nor Eugene, I believe with the banks that we have very good relationships with, the ones we have built relationships over with several years. So it's important to build and then nourish your banking relationships. You always want to keep adding new relationships as you can because sometimes a bank will fall out. And that's happened to us too. They're like, we're just not into single family investment properties anymore. No offense or anything like that. I want to add one little thing in with that relationship. The relationship is more than just you borrowing money from them. We oftentimes, always times have to put money, significant amount of money and leave it in a bank because that's what counts as a relationship. So when we're talking about building a relationship, it's not just going back and continuing to get loans. It's also making a commitment to put your funds with the bank. And unfortunately, it means we have funds spread out through many different banks, but our banking relationships really get us through in times like this. But it's taken years to build that sort of a network. Anyway, I just wanted to add that little and also those relationships extend to private uh, lenders and uh, folks who've done seller financing. Yesterday, Andrew and I talked to a, a fellow who actually did seller financing on the 97 properties that we bought from him. We have a partner in that and we're negotiating with our partner to uh, see if we can become sole owners of those properties. And it was just heartening to hear him say, you're the best uh, people I've ever dealt with in terms of uh, a lending relationship. Uh, and we've, we've been doing that now for over four years with him. So your your reputation, your follow through, your honoring your word, your credit, it's all really important. And if you're going to build over time and scale your business, you've, you've, you've got to put that front and center as, as a high priority. Absolutely. And so, I mean, your, your reputation is key for those relationships. But in addition, the main thing is some banks are really tightening up. Some banks are still lending. It, a lot of it depends on what are their, what, how, what are the, what is their cash at? What's how many delinquencies do they have? How, what do they believe is going to happen down the line? Every bank is different in the same way every, every investor, every agent, every property, every seller is different. And so if you have one, I mean, if you get caught in the middle of a one and a bank just drops the, you know, drops it on you, like we're going to lower the LTV a bunch, that that's terrible. Uh, nothing you can do there. But don't give up. There are other banks that, you know, don't just take the bad deal or give up. It might be worth waiting. But the big thing is just, you know, pound the pavement, go to your local RIA, get on the bigger pockets forms, get on good stewards, get on you know, just start asking around who's, who's still lending, which, which, uh, which banks are lending at full, you know, 75% LTV, same terms and, and the like, and start approaching them. But so long-term build up your relationships. Those will keep you through short-term, uh, just, you know, talk to other investors. Everyone, everyone is dealing with this. This is a worldwide thing. Everyone's dealing with it. So everyone knows what you're talking about. And there are, uh, there are banks that are still doing it. So it's the, the key is to look for, those banks and hopefully you have those relationships and if you don't start building them but if it's you can start now it's not impossible to and the rates are very good 
Let's go on to our next question. One person asked about uh, they basically they needed to inspect a very large apartment complex, 220 units, and we like we recommend always going through every single unit. Don't rely on the word of the seller. Seller, you know, buyers are liars and sellers are, well, they're liars too. And so if you're only going to see 30%, 40%, they're going to be the better ones. And they're going to make sure to show you the better ones. So get into every single unit. And she was, I guess the problem was basically that COVID happened and now it's very difficult to get into those units. And so what is the way to deal with this? Well, the first thing I would note is you should always have a clause in your contract that allows you to extend it. So we always put into our con- our apartment or portfolio contracts what we call 30-30-30. Basically 30 days to do the inspection period where our earnest money is refundable, 30 more days to close it. And then if we need more time for whatever reason, loan, blah, 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 we can put down another earnest money and extend it 30 days more to so make it 90 days. That being said, I think this entire situation deserves possibly another clause that we should consider adding and we all should consider adding is something like, you know, a a disaster or something like that, that makes it impossible to perform due diligence will automatically extend the contract until that disaster has been resolved or that pandemic. That would be something to consider. I don't think that would be a problem, but generally speaking, um, so I, I do think you should consider putting that in. We are definitely going to, uh, talk to an attorney about that. Um, but I think in this instance, if you're under contract with somebody, they presumably want to sell it to you. They presumably don't want to put it back on the market. And I'm sorry, you're not going to find investors who are, you know, these, these institutional investors who are buying 200 unit apartments who aren't going to do very thorough due diligence. And so, yeah, they might not go through every single unit. Not everyone's going to do that, but they're going to go through a lot. So there's no investors out there. Oh yeah, we'll buy a side and see it or they'll do it. But like, yeah, okay, we're going to pay you 20 cents on the dollar or something just absurd. So in all likelihood, the seller will work with you. They understand the situation. Everybody is dealing with this problem. So I don't just get in touch with the seller and ask to extend the due diligence. Or is there a way that, you know, or maybe just seeing like if there's some residents that, you know, you get get everything done that you can now. In most states, it appears that the... um, that the quarantine will be lifted sometime in mid-May, in early May or mid-May. I mean, I think some places are already starting to reopen. And then, you know, it's, you should be able to get a mask or two, you know, um, and you may make sure that everyone go through has a mask, maybe have rubber gloves, don't touch anything, make sure that the residents know that they don't need to be there, that, that they're going to be in and out quickly, that you're going to be wearing a mask and stuff like that to, to help put them at ease. But they still are, the resident is still obligated to allow the management company to have access. So it's not, it's not impossible to do it even when people are nervous about it. Well, and I would add something into it. Something that is just going to be a fact of life. Maybe something I was considering purchasing for X dollars pre-COVID. Maybe I'm not as willing to close it during COVID or after COVID because, you know, without being extra diligent and looking at, all right, how many people that were living there that we're paying rent now longer, no longer have jobs and are struggling to make rent payments and looking at when the rents are coming in compared to how they were coming in. Maybe you're, you know, maybe it's a good enough property that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an area that wasn't hit that hard, but maybe it's really bad. And maybe it's just, you know, I would be taking a really a closer look at something and looking at it again, uh, you know, every month as it goes through, just to make sure it's really something that you want to close post COVID. 
a couple of examples in Eugene recently, one in which we got a $10,000 reduction because of COVID essentially and the uncertainty in the market. And another one, we went back to the seller and they owned it free and clear. It's a $350,000 property uh, that we are going to flip in this case. Uh, and because they owned it free and clear, we, we proposed to them that they do seller carry for six months. And it's actually a lease option. So we turned a contract that we would normally get a private lender on into something that the seller carried carried, uh, carried it back. And what was so sweet about that is that they're doing it for $500 a month, which covers their taxes and insurance, instead of what would it cost us to get a private lender on that, plus we'd be paying taxes and insurance. And so overall, for four months, we have it for $500 a month. That's a pretty sweet deal. And and. I'll, the situation allowed us that creativity and it made sense to the seller because of this uncertainty in the market. So there are things. Yeah, I mean, people do. are afraid of people backing out. We had we were selling a flip house and just unfortunately got hit right at the time. We had two sellers back out. Both we got on our contract against closing here in a second. I don't want to jinx myself, but it's about to close, hopefully. Um, so but we're not not at the same price and we had to do more repairs. So it's uh it, it's one of those things people are are thinking about this and it might be worth backing out. It might be worth retrading. It might be worth backing out. Those are things to consider. I mean, you don't want to back, you don't want to go into a deal planning on retrading. That's not, a, not the right way to do business. And you don't want to back out if you don't have to, but and reach, sometimes you got to retrade. Base, basically it's, it's what retra- is retrading, Andrew? Some people might not retrading know Retrading is just renegotiating the price once it's after, after it's under contract. It's just the, the real estate jingo for it. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so, so you don't you don't want to go on planning to retrade. You don't want to back out if you don't have to. But sometimes you do. I mean, that's that's part of the business, and you shouldn't be afraid to do it when it's necessary. I think we should probably move on along to the next question. Okay, so um, the next question is: How long is too long to hold on to a property that's not cash flowing? I think that depends on so many things. Are we talking about? $10,000 a month of negative cash flow? Or are you talking about a couple hundred? Or are you talking about 100? I mean, I, I think, I think first of all, how much money you're going backwards every month is a big deal if it's a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I was brought a deal yesterday by one of our partners that uh, basically was going to lose about $1,500 a month. And he was thinking we would wait three years until we would we could see this turn around i said i'm absolutely not interested in that uh even though this had some some creativity to it because you could cut off the back lot and build on the on the back of the property cut it in half i said i'd much rather just sell the front property right now so we can kind of see where we're at and then then get to work on constructing uh, a house on the back side a lot which you can do in this particular city uh so, you know, I think negative cash flow is kind of a losing proposition in general because there's no uh, there's no guarantee of appreciation, particularly in this market. There's probably a guarantee of depreciation, if anything. So in this market, negative cash flow is even more negative than than generally uh, assumed. So the only positive about waiting is that you're paying down your loan if you have a, a lender loan from a bank. And so you're paying down the principal. Weighing that out, how's your cash reserves? Do you really, uh, are you able to really handle that? I think there are a couple things to note. One is it's 
a couple other things to note. Generally, you, yeah, you're right. We, you don't want to hold it, you, especially if it's a large loss. The only exception, if you know it's a loss that you would want to hold, in my opinion, is if you are highly confident that this area is probably going to appreciate. You can never know for certain. But if you're buying exactly in the path of progress and it's about to get hit by it, uh, let's say you're right next to downtown and they're expanding it, there's a streetcar going by it, uh, something along those lines. Or uh, I would say these these are very rare instances. And generally, it should be a very small part of your portfolio you're willing to do this with. And you should probably be a seasoned and experienced investor to do this. Or forced depreciation, which is basically value add by doing something to the property that really increases its value, uh, that would increase uh, its it's value to sell or possibly as a value well, to would, cash yeah, flow Yeah, that would better. be to increase the value to sell or, yeah, which is kind of leading in the next point. Can you fix it? It's not necessarily easy to tell whether you're cash flowing, especially if it's a house. One bad turnover, one uh, re- resident who doesn't pay rent for a few months, that year is lost. You are going to lose money on the house that year. But that doesn't mean the house is, you know, just just – it, uh, just destined to lose money forever. So it's, it's sort of tricky to do that. You got to run with, with estimates. Like what is your, you know, is your vacancy 10%? Well, probably will be that, you know, your, your, your repairs will probably be, you know, 800 to $1,000 a year, uh, but maintenance and turnover expenses, but it, it's coming years. It's going to be a lot more. So, you, you know, if you have other houses or other in your portfolio, look at those, see what similar houses are doing uh, in comparison to that. And just see like, or is it fixable? You know, is it so? So first of all, is it actually not cash flowing? And also, is it fixable? And that is like, is there something you could do? Could you, uh, could you, su- could you subdivide off the back lot and sell it as a as a flag lot where you have the the property here and then a lot a driveway that goes to the back and the back lot there and make that you know that income you know reduce your loan amount or something like that? Can you turn it into a duplex? Can you, can, you know, can you, uh, can you reduce the utilities? Maybe the utilities are just too high. Can you increase the rent? Can you add a bathroom and, and increase the rent? So all these questions should be asked before giving up. And then also the other final question is what hit are you going to take if you sell it? Are you going to make a bunch of money? Then probably, yeah. If you're going to take a huge hit, maybe it's worth holding on to it. So it's mostly like a series of questions to ask more than just a direct answer. The other possibility is if you're cash poor, maybe you know somebody who's cash rich. And if there's a value in this property, it could be something that you'd want to partner with uh, or bring somebody in on, say, I don't really want to sell this, even though I need the money. What do you think about you coming in with me on it? And uh, let's, let's share this together. So that's another possibility of keeping it. Next question. So it basically has to do with It's, you know, we talk about a lot about having your cash reserves and being strong that way. And some people it's not, you know, it's going to take a really long time to get, you know, your cash reserves saved up and that sort of thing. So basically the question is, do you recommend that any cash flow earned off your investment properties stay in your business to build up reserves um, until they're built up and then buy another property or keep buying and not be as mindful about the reserves. Like what's your, I mean, say you're, you know, you're getting started in the game. You want to keep building, but you know, we're also telling, you know, we're also saying like, you want to have the cash reserves and you can't, all of those things maybe aren't possible for you at the same time. What do you prioritize? This was in response to a point that we made about the importance of having cash reserves. Basically not having cash reserves is what 
more or less started the financial crisis in 2008. And as the people who are in really big trouble now are those who didn't have cash reserves. Having cash reserves as well as stable private lenders and long-term financing or no no debt, which is even better. But if you have don't have high interest short-term financing, but long-term financing, private stable private lenders, well, you know, high occupancy, well-established systems and cash reserves are what make you anti-fragile. And that's a term from Nassim Taleb, which you should definitely read his book, Anti-Fragile. But it's the idea is basically when you're when a, when a crash happens, are you going to break like a company that's fragile? Are you going to survive that's robust? Or are you going to be able to take advantage of it? Because when crashes happen is when stuff is cheap. And so that's when you can take advantage if you have the cash reserves and the private lenders and you're stable and you can handle those losses. That's when you can buy up stuff very inexpensively and you can take off and actually grow from crashes. You are anti-fragile. So that was what the question is in response to. And I think um, I, I, I'm, you know, again, a lot, it depends, but uh, it's, um, I think generally speaking, you want to build up those cash reserves. If you find the deal of the century, you jump on it. You find a way to buy that property. Uh, but at the same time, you know, while you're building up your cash, you know, real estate is not something you have to do one or the other. I mean, you don't want to f- do everything, but if you get a great deal, but you're trying to build up your cash reserves, you can also sell that great deal and make a bunch of money. And then your cash reserves are even higher. And then you can go look for another property. So I think. I think that's the key, isn't it, Andrew? Particularly when you're starting out, because most people aren't going to have a lot of cash reserves starting out. And so buying with a margin, in my mind, is the critical thing that you can always turn around and sell. And, you know, my when I first started, my thing was, if I can turn around and sell this, and I can make $1 on it, including paying all the closing costs and the real estate costs, if there were, are some, uh, then, and I'm, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced I could take a loss but I could make a dollar out of it if I could sell it. That that helped me realize I, I had cash reserves in a sense in the margin that I was buying properties. So if you're looking for properties that are have a 25%, they're 25% lower than what a similar property would be as you comp it out, and you can value add to it and you increase your margin, so to speak, your safety margin, then I think you you have to you have to take some uh, reasonable risk in those kind of situations. Well, okay, I, I but I want to say, I want to push back too, because <laughs> you were doing that I'm surprised. in a very appreciating market. <laughs> and would you have made the, that same decision if the pandemic happened in the nineties, when you were realizing this very, you were in a market that was basically, you could make a mistake at the, that moment in time. Would you make that same decision today? Uh, if I if I was convinced I had a twenty five percent margin, I guess I would probably do it. Uh, again, how do you start from scratch and say, "Oh, I need a bunch of cash reserves uh, right off the bat"? You you just can't do it. I mean, there there is a, there is a risk here, but the risk I think should be reasonable. The way I would take. refer to it is there are a couple of things. One, starting with nothing, like the gurus who say, you know no money down. You don't need any money to start. I, that is really not, I mean, you can start with a partner who brings the money. I think that's a thing, but real estate does require some money. So you do need to build up some save. That might just be 10, $20,000, but starting with $0, 
in just like a credit card, that is really not an approach that makes it. That's a way to buy guru stuff, not a way to invest. But in let me ask estate. you, Andrew, if you actually were, if you were totally convinced that you had a 25% margin, you really did, even in this yeah. situation, wouldn't you probably buy Get it? Get it under contract, but then you probably either find a partner or wholesale it. But okay. you're usually not well, going to find that without marketing for it, which requires some money. So it's like the people who start real estate investing with zero, uh, you probably want to build, you know, build up some savings first or find a partner. Did so you like, have zero dollars, Bill, in 1989? Did you have zero? Uh, I, I, got I got a loan from my yeah. father that okay. helped me start. Right. The thing I wanted to push back on was not that. Equity is great. You should always be aiming for high margins you should never see your equity as cash reserves. The reason is that that's like a secondary, I would actually say cash reserves one, lines of credit two, equity three. But you need, well, you don't need the second one, although they're nice, but you need cash reserves and equity. In a crisis, your equity goes away. Like it doesn't, like it, some of it just disappears. You lose, you lose value in your properties. But you also, it's harder to get access to it because banks aren't lending, private lenders are skittish. All these, it's not, and, and, and no, and people aren't buying, or at least they're not. So you can get access to it, but you usually got to, you are firing selling at that point. You don't want to sell your properties in, a, in the middle of a, when the properties have dropped in value a lot. You want to, I mean, either sell them before that or hold on to them until they start to appreciate again. Otherwise, you are basically being one of those people fire selling that other investors who have the cash reserves are using to buy. So cash reserves need to be seen as separate than, than the equity and the property. The equity protects you from going down. But having cash reserves is what makes you anti-fragile because you can use those cash reserves as well as the stable private lenders, as well as your line of credits, to jump on the potential deals that are there. So you want to, again, early on, it's hard to have those. I think you need a little bit to start, but you want to be cognizant of building that. And, and you know, one way is you can think of having you know, early on, maybe 5%, uh, preferably 10, but probably maybe 5% aim for that of your assets in cash. Uh, as you get bigger and bigger, you can go down a little bit because you have economies of scale and you have like more diversification. So it's less likely to be to hit you as hard. Or um, some people think of it as months of saving. Like you can get through all of your expenses for six months. Aim for something like that would be a good way to think of it. Pick one, aim for it. It's something to build to. You might not start there, but it's something to build to. And so, uh, and if you get that great deal and you like, I, I'm gonna, this is going to cash me out completely. Well, I mean, you can sell that and make a big profit and then use that to start again. Okay, let's move on to the next question. As an aspiring investor, my concern is how the after rehab values will be affected by the pandemic. If homes lose value, I foresee it difficult to use the Burr method. Yes, I um, mean, that's Yeah, if you don't so, got the skills. So you want to continue being in the game, but we all don't know where this is going. Right now, I, we haven't necessarily seen the drop happen in home values. We all expect that it will because foreclosures are basically not being pursued right now. But at some point, there are people missing payments, foreclosures in the market. There's a lot of people losing jobs, uh, their ability to buy going down. I think these are all things that are going to affect home pricing in the future. Correct? It, it really is a strange market because going into this pandemic, uh, there was such a tight market in many, many locations and uh, because of that, I think that's what's propped up the market and continues to do so. But over time, uh, you know, and I think we're we're not even 
there's, of course, everybody has their own opinion. I think it's 2022 till we even start really pulling out of this thing. Uh, and can home prices stay st stable that long when, as Amanda says, there's going to be a lot of people, sadly, who are going to be not able to make their payments and lenders coming to a you know, conclusion that the, their patience has run out. And so these are going to go into foreclosure. And when that happens, that, you know, there's a lot of properties that hit the market all of a sudden, and that jacks up the supply, which uh, is what uh, drives down the price. So, so you know, it's it's really hard to say at this point. It's very unlike 2007, 2008, which uh, the, the market was just, you know, people had overpaid, they had un over leveraged, they had very few of their own assets money into it. They got liar loans, all kinds of things were happening and the market was at the very top. So it was, there, there was not this tight market that we have right now. And, uh, it was a di much different environment. So the outcome could be different. It's really hard to say. I think there's a, another question is, were we, uh, cause I was predicting, although, you know, predictions with economic, economic predictions are about, are worth about as much as fortune cookie predictions. Um, and, but I was predicting that there was going to be a recession this year anyways. And so are we, is COVID just exposing, triggering and exacerbating a recession that was already here, which make, would make it all the worse. So I don't think we're going to know that for a while. That being said, this time, real estate is not the cause of the recession. It is going to be dragged down by the, by the coattails of Every, you know the lockdown and whatever else right the loss and of so jobs probably won't is be, going you know, to real estate was hit mm. the worst last time it will probably not be hurt the worst this time i mean I, I think these are hard questions to answer because we don't know we've never we have not lived through something like this so this is for this for the whole economy and country to come to a screeching halt basically over the course of five days in march you know we're and now we're just sort of waiting for things to open back up, what that looks like, people getting back to work. If I was a, if I was somebody wanting to come in and start my investment career right now, I might be, I might be in a wait and see. I don't know. I think a lot of it would be depend on if I can get the private loan in place, can I cash flow this property as is for the long term? And can I, can I make that happen? That would be like my question, you know, can I do this without, um, being able to burr out, you know, I mean, I think a lot of those depend on your current circumstances. Yeah. If you've got a bank that you know is, is financing 75%, like the first question we were talking about, if you, if you don't have a bank right now, then you probably should be more cautious. If you have a bank that, you know, will go at 75%, you have a relationship, that's all the better. I think the general rule of thumb for this situation, as with any situation where you're buying on the downslope, you know, because real estate market is cyclical. It goes like this. And so when you're buying on the upslope, you want to be aggressive. When you're buying at the peak, you want to be careful. When you're buying on the, uh, the the trough, you want to be aggressive, but not super aggressive. When you're buying, actually, let me, when you're buying at the trough, you want to be super aggressive. Never mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> you want to be super aggressive in the trough and the upswing. Then you want to, you want to be very careful at the top. During the downslope, you want to be super careful because you need a bigger margin. And so if you're buying at 75%, you should be looking for a 70 or even 65% uh, after a pair of value. It's hard opinion. to catch a falling a, knife. That's the thing. It's hard right? to catch a falling knife, but there are catchable knives that fall, particularly butter mm -hmm. knives, which aren't even sharp. So who cares? 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's okay. Those are your sweet so look deals, for the butter right? knife. Look for the butter <laughs> knife. That's the, that is the advice there. I think that's the title of this podcast, don't you think? Look for the butter knives out there. <laughs> Catch the falling butter knife. And realize you won't even know if it was a butter knife until you get a year down the line. But catch them, no less. Do it. Be more careful than you would have otherwise and look for a better ARV than you would have otherwise. And if you're just getting started, I mean, it, it might be a time to like, what better time to learn? You're you're cooped up in your place. You're in quarantine. I mean, just binge watch or listen to the good stewards you got like hours and hours there you'll be an expert afterwards i got a book coming out you can buy that read it um you got you got blog posts you got my post on bigger pockets got our blog post on uh on the good stewards ryan's got his videos we've got other videos just 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 go to town like uh it's a good time to learn better to probably a probably a little bit of a wait and see especially especially I don't know exactly when this, this episode will come out compared to when the quarantines will start ending, but I would want to see at least if you're actually getting started, I wouldn't want to start until at least a month after the quarantine ends that we should be able to assess the damage better then. And then that way you can be like, okay, this is, is going to free fall. I need to wait or it's, eh, it's, it's bad, but it's not too bad. I'm going to get in it, but I'm going to be more careful and go for 65, 70%. So that is the first thing. But the second thing is you got a lot of time on your hands. You're in quarantine, whatever. Start reading, start listening to podcasts, learn all the stuff. There's a lot to learn. And this is what better time to do it than now. And all real estate is local. So every locality is going to be different in terms of the supply demand and uh, weigh that in the balance as well. The more less desirable areas are going to be harder hit. Uh, places like condos are going to be harder hit, I think. At least they were the last recession. So you got to weigh those factors as well. I think that about wraps it up. Um, we've had a we've had a good little discussion here. Touched on a lot of topics. Answer. I know a lot of people are antsy, very nervous. Uh, a lot of questions regarding COVID nineteen, regarding the lockdown, regarding the state of the mortgage industry, starting regarding real estate values, regarding what to do. And uh, uh, since we're all licensed epidemiologists and uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, PhD economists, uh, we can give you those answers with a complete degree of certainty. And so I hope you've enjoyed our, our show here. Please join us next time and check us out at thegoodstewards.com. Thank you. Thank you.